0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
2: Thursday morning the 29th of February Good morning and uh, with much debate and uh, discussion from now till 11am this is Michael Reid on LMFM As you know the High Court in Belfast ruled yesterday that giving immunity to people who carried out crimes including murder during the troubles in uh, the British Government's Legacy Act will be in breach of uh, the European Convention on Human Rights as well as uh, the Windsor Framework The Court's ruling will be of significant significant embarrassment to the British government which has been told that uh, the relevant sections of the legislation should be
3: disapplied. We've just seen the judgment uh, in Belfast in, in recent hours. It's a very long judgment, I think it's around 200 pages, but it does seem to be positive. The Irish government's position on this has been consistent and steadfast. We, want, we believe all families deserve justice. We want all families to get justice. We're very much aware of the judgment delivered in the High Court earlier today. It's a long, detailed judgment brought by a number of individuals uh, whose route to truth and justice will be curtailed by the UK Legacy Act. The government will study the judgment carefully. Officials from the Department of Finance are in close contact with organisations assisting the plaintiffs and the government's approach to legacy issues has been and remains that it must be victim-centred and it must be compliant with international human rights standards.
2: Minister Simon Harris giving the initial government response here. Let's speak uh, to Grania Taggart, Amnesty International UK's Northern Ireland Brand- Deputy Director. Good morning to you, Grania, and uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning victory. uh, But I guess it was just one of quite possibly many battles in this war against this legislation.
4: Yeah, it is absolutely. I mean, yesterday was round one, but a critical step forward in overturning this law. The immunity from prosecution on which the entire act is centered is not only unjust, but as the court has found is unlawful and has been struck down with immediate effect. So that is a significant decision of the court yesterday and the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland now has very big questions, um, serious political questions to answer in terms of how they plan to proceed. Um, As your listeners may be aware, you know, this legislation had support from absolutely no one. This is a law that only the UK government wanted and they pushed it through against the will of victims and many others. So the court has spoken very clearly yesterday, and we would urge now for the government to repeal this legislation and to put in place processes that actually have victims at the centre, that prioritise victims, that should always have been the case. It was never right that their their opposition and their rights, you know, were shunned mm. and they were set aside uh, in in the pursuit of pushing this law through. So a good day um, on the whole yesterday. Of course, the court did also say that the new body that the law establishes, the ICRIR, basically that it's too soon to tell whether or not you know that's human rights compliance. But again, given that the immunity from prosecution, which is, for want of a better way of putting it, the incentive for a perpetrator to come forward and give information that may be of use to victims about what happened to their loved ones, That immunity from prosecution is no longer there. Therefore, there's no incentive for anyone, if there was in the first place, and that was arguable, to take part in that new body. So there's big
2: questions for that body Hmm. here as well. All right. Uh, What will this law mean? Because I I think its impact is already being felt. Uh, There was a a case uh, taken by Sinn Féin's Gerry Adams, uh, which was deemed academic and couldn't be heard last week uh, when he he wanted uh, to uh, take a, a case of miscarriage of justice against the British government.
4: Yeah, I mean the the other, I mean, so, so the other key decisions there yesterday. Obviously, the immunity from prosecution being the core aspect of the law struck out. Is also there was the ban on civil claims that was immediately introduced or attempted to be introduced on the date the bill was published, so without any prior warning. There was that ban on civil claims being taken. The court has also ruled that that too is unlawful and has been struck down. So that was another significant move by the court there yesterday. Now, as you said in the beginning, and indeed it's correct, you know, there is a way to go in this, yes, the UK government has restated yesterday its commitment to um, continue this legal challenge. So it will be under the Court of Appeal next and then under the UK Supreme Court. But also, I think equally importantly, yesterday what we had was a statement, a restatement from the UK Labour Party that if after the general election due later this year that they are in power, that they will repeal this legislation. So there is a way to go in this yet. And what we know certainly is that Mm. victims in all of the decades that they have been failed, have never given up and they certainly won't stop now. And as Amnesty, we will continue to fight through the course and also through um, political advocacy to ensure that we get a law that is fit for purpose and will deliver for victims. It is not right for any government to deny truth and justice to victims of very serious crimes like murder.
2: Uh, and add to all of that, of course, uh, the Irish government's uh, challenge uh, to... This law in the European courts, but is there any point in the British government proceeding with this because of the position of the Labour Party? Who is going to admit to having committed a crime during the Troubles, although they may uh, receive uh, immunity for it? uh, Would that not be overturned if uh, the legislation is repealed by Labour?
4: Yeah, I mean, the, the immunity no longer exists. You know, it was struck out by the court yesterday, so the immunity is gone. So there are questions there for the Secretary of State in, in terms of how this law can now stand. As Amnesty, we say that, that it can't. And of course, there is the, the, the interstate case and the Irish government's challenge as well. The Irish government have always been very unequivocal in their opposition to this law, and we're encouraged that obviously they have very recently lodged their papers to challenge this at the European Court of Human Rights. That State level intervention as well as these victim led legal challenges, you know, in the domestic courts is critical because it sends that message that human rights obligations that the UK are under can't be shirked. But it also means, crucially, that victims at a time when they've been abandoned by the UK government, that they are not being left alone to shoulder the responsibility of challenging this law and taking on the UK government.
2: Uh, And the UK government has uh, throughout uh, been saying uh, that uh, there is no prospect of prosecutions uh, and that is uh, the logic behind this legislation because we're talking about cases that go back 40, 50 years in time. In some cases, uh, but others would argue that, of course.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, for many victims, this was always about, you know, actually just getting the truth of what happened to their loved ones. And, you know, they don't have confidence in the ICRIR. There are significant concerns that We Have Amnesty has had as well, given that it is centred around this immunity from prosecution, which now no longer exists. You know, it is now all eyes on the UK government as to what they do next. But, you know, the... The Troubles Act, and it's really important to understand obviously the human impact of this, you know, it betrays victims in the cruelest way possible. It has only added to already years of trauma by denying them truth and justice. I mean, you know, if in a non-troubles conflict context, someone had a loved one murdered, you would rightly expect, you know, investigations, you'd expect truth and justice. That's what's being denied, you know, to these victims. And we have seen time and time again that despite the passage of time, new information comes to light and, and that it is possible to get truth and justice for victims. So for the UK government mm. to swoop in with this law and try to remove that from victims is just, its well, it's a very significant interference in the justice system but it's also, it, it is a very cruel betrayal. So, Important day there yesterday for victims, you know, a mixed bag in terms of saying it's too soon to say on the ICRIR. There are points that will continue now to be challenged in the Court of Appeal, but we fade on.
2: And of course, uh, there's uh, people like Martina Dillon, who stood outside the court with you yesterday, Grania, uh, who will testify uh, that a lot of these crimes are are very recent. Uh, They don't go back 40 or 50 years in time.
4: Yeah, I mean, look, like, you know, I think what people have to understand is that the past is still the present. You know, the troubles may, we, people may talk about this like it was decades ago. Of course, there were some instances that were much more recent than that. But, you know, the the victims live with the trauma of what they experienced every day. And that trauma is only compounded by the UK government putting barrier after barrier to actually getting the, the, the truth that they're entitled to. So, as Martina said outside the court yesterday, you know, she has fought for 26 years, but she will continue to fight. She fights every day in her husband's memory because she has to, mm. you know, and that's the same for so many other victims. And as we have seen down at the court yesterday, you know, that judgment mattered not just to the victims who were in court um, taking that challenge, but to every troubled victim who stands to lose out by this law.
2: Uh, and Martina's husband, shot by loyalists uh, when he was working as a, a doorman in Tyrone in 1997, John McAvoy, with you as well. He survived a, a gun attack in 1992. Undoubtedly, the people responsible for These uh, attacks are still with us. They're alive and well, uh, in some cases at least, and could be open to prosecution.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the immunity now gone, you know, um, anyone who's obviously committed those crimes, including in John's case and indeed in other cases, um, they they are now the the opportunity for prosecution is still there. But again, and also then with Linda McManus, who was at the court there yesterday, you know, her civil claim can now continue. And again, given what the police ombudsman has said in relation to Sean Graham bookmakers, those possibilities are there too. So, you know, the, the UK government, you know, they peddled a narrative um, to justify this law about, you know, they talked about things like a witch hunt, which didn't exist. They talked about how the immunity from prosecution was to protect veterans. Of course, what they didn't then go on to say is what they felt veterans need protected from. You know, the rule of law applies to all. If you have acted within the law, then you've obviously nothing to fear. If you didn't act within the law, then, of course, the rule of law should apply to you as much to anyone else. So, you know, we're not talking about, you know, there, there were, we're not talking about, you know, a, a vexatious claims as the UK government was trying to put across. Mm. You know, these are just victims who have experienced very real significant trauma. They lost loved ones. They want answers that they're entitled to. And the UK government should actually find ways that um, they th- should... Uh, fulfil their obligations and give them those paths to get those answers that they're entitled to.
2: And the ICR has already been established the Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery. Uh, Do you think that that will have an important role in the years ahead?
4: Uh, well, the work begins, obviously, on the 1st of May, you know, properly for the ICRIR, but given the judgment there yesterday, as I said, there's questions now that the Secretary of State will have to address in terms of how that will operate, given that a core aspect of that centered around the immunity from prosecution, which no longer exists. So, you know, the I, I think, you know, there has been... Declan Morgan, obviously as the head you know of that body, has been making attempts to you know put i suppose put across high heat plans to operate you know this body, but given that that core aspect is now removed um we we need to see obviously what now happens next. There are points that victims will now continue to challenge in the court of appeal. we know obviously the u k government has signaled their intention um to continue with this legal challenge, so mm-hmm. we we will take this obviously as it comes but I, I should say as well that it is. It's, of course, welcome that the UK um, Labour Party have said that they will repeal this legislation. So um, mm. plenty politically and legally um, still to go in this.
2: When, when, when do you think the uh, Supreme Court uh, will ultimately rule on this? As you say, it'll go to the Court of Appeal. This is the assumption at this case, uh, at this stage at least, and then on to the Supreme Court. Uh, when do you envisage that happening?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to say because obviously it's at the discretion of the courts. But certainly, given the significance of what's at play here, we do think there is just cause for for this to be expedited. So we would hope that that would be a, the approach that the courts the courts will take.
2: OK. All right. Well, it's a significant ruling, as you say, Grania. i I'm sure it's welcomed by everybody on this island uh, because uh, I don't think anybody has been in favour of uh, this legislation, uh, this British legislation outside of uh, the British government. But thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Grania Taggart, Amnesty International, UK's Northern Ireland Deputy Director. Michael,
5: Michael Reed on LMFM. LMFM.
2: Well, episode 172 of... The RTE saga continues and in the current episode we're looking at uh, the Minister for Media who is under the spotlight and the question is why did she effectively sack the chair of the RTE board on live television?
6: I had previously agreed to appear in primetime last Thursday to discuss not only the future funding of RTE but also to address the questions of seeking maximum possible transparency with regard to severance agreements and payments. It became apparent shortly before my appearance that a number of media queries were being raised in relation to these matters, and I I believed that in the interest of transparency, it was necessary for me to address this matter. However, I was still hopeful that the former chair would accept my invitation to meet her. I must emphasise the importance of a minister maintaining complete confidence in the chair of a state body. This confidence was eroded, but I believed that a meeting would help to restore it, and this was my only motivation in seeking to fully address the events of last week. Regrettably, the former chair did submit her resignation and I would like again to put on record of this House my genuine appreciation for the significant contribution which Miss Nee ratley had made to the process to reform RTE over a relatively short space of time.
2: Minister Catherine Martin speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. There were many statements made about this and we'll hear more of them during the programme today. But let's speak to Gavin Riley now. Gavin is a political correspondent, as you know, with Virgin Media News and a columnist with uh, the Mead Chronicle. Good morning to you, Gavin. And thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Indeed, readers of the Mead Chronicle will know that you swallowed hard and said it. You don't believe that the minister should have done that interview on prime time.
7: Yeah, it sort of seems like it's anathema for any journalist to ever say that a minister should have pulled out of a prior media commitment because we spend our days trying to get people, TDs, ministers to commit to doing media and then we all get fairly peeved uh, when somebody pulls out of them and you know, and I, I presented a show similar to yours on a Sunday and you've before and you'd often have ministers that might be lined up or who have agreed in principle to do an interview with you and then pull out because something else has come up or they're double booked or they just find themselves unable to make that previous arrangement but I suppose the point to make is that it happens and in the circumstances there is a genuine question as to why Catherine Martin saw fit to go ahead with a fairly rare intervention on live TV. And I I was pointing this out in the column this week. Um, Catherine Martin has only been on prime time since she took office, which was June 2020. She has been on prime time three times including last week the most recent of them was in january 2022 when the last of the cold restrictions were about to be lifted and Catherine martin was therefore talking about what could be done to try and support the arts and culture and nightlife sectors it was reasonably softball stuff but she hasn't darkened the door of the primetime studio in two years which kind of does beg a question as to why she chose to do it now i mean moreover she hasn't been on the tonight show on Virgin Media since July of 2020 she had been in office about 10 days so she hadn't done anything in the job that she could be held to account for it was really more a forward looking interview about what her priorities might be for her time in that brief Uh, and in the the five years that I was presenting News Talk four and a half of those years uh, in the lifetime of this last government and uh, no sign of Catherine Martin ever accepting an invite uh, to come on a programme like mine so she is not a regular person to take on uh, an interview particularly on TV and in that light then it kind of makes you wonder then well what was the motivation of of going on last week. Now there is there's there's two ways of looking at the events of the last two nights. So we have had the dull statements yesterday, and then there were the, uh, the the three and a half hours of committee meetings in in the bowels of Leinster House the night before. And it is worth worth saying, and and it's a very fair point to make. You know what people were talking about was Catherine Martin. You know, was, was she right to go on TV? But then, when she went on, was mm. she right to say what she did? I mean, if you look at the the ultimate trail of events and and the point that she made there in that clip, that she does, it is absolutely vital that a minister has confidence in the chair. Of a state board or uh, something which is equivalent to a semi state, the chair of that board is the only person in that company who is accountable to the government through the minister. There has to be a certain amount of arm's length operation, and particularly in RTE when it comes to the importance of them not having a minister leaning on their content. The only point of contact that the government has is the chair of the board. And Catherine Martin found herself in a situation where she saw something in the papers which was news to her. Um, She called in the chair of the board on the Monday and said, Is that true? And the chair said, No. She was talking to her again on the Wednesday in relation to something else, and said, "By the way, are you are you still convinced that that's not true?" And she said, "Yeah, absolutely, not true." And then she called up on Thursday morning and rang the department and said, "Actually, no, wait, I forgot, it yeah. is true," and I presided over the meeting where we made that decision. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it does genuinely raise questions as to why a minister would have confidence. But I mean, so I think, and then there was this letter. And, she should have done it so dramatically. I think it was probably fine to do as she did.
2: Uh, it, it was possible, if not probable, that Shuni Raheli was going to resign anyway because the minister was going to write to her, was she not, and say that she wasn't happy about all of that and Shuni Raheli said she didn't want that letter. Uh, So the minister then decided to proceed with the primetime interview. Uh, And am I right in thinking that the minister's handlers fed the researchers in RTE the questions to ask her?
7: Not the questions necessarily to ask her. And she was quite clear on that. But nonetheless, she did basically indicate that she was happy to be asked about this question. And I think this this gets to the other point of how the story has shifted maybe in the last couple of days, because up until Tuesday, we were talking about, you know, the the, the tranche of documentation that RT had sent over and whether the department should have understood that revised terms of reference for uh, a directorial subcommittee now actually included certain duties. And uh, I can hear listeners' eyes glazing over when I say that already, because That's quite technical and tedious, but where the story shifted on Tuesday night is that although it now seems fairly reasonable that given she'd been led down the garden path, Catherine Martin was right to be aggrieved and to put on record her annoyance at that. But there is now separately, and this is the fact that it's separate is maybe the reason why Catherine Martin is likely to get through the storm on this. Uh, there are question marks around her own political sensibilities or her political judgment. So, you know, she she was going to send Shuni Raleigh a letter just to put in writing that she was a bit peeved about being misled on the Monday and Wednesday. Shuni Raleigh contacts the department and says, well, you know, I would basically consider that to be a resigning matter if you scold me in writing that's it, I'm gone. I don't feel like I can do the job anymore. And Catherine Martin made clear in the hearings on Tuesday night and again on Wednesday that although she had serious issues with Juni Rallig accidentally misleading her, she did think it was accidental and she basically didn't think it was a resigning matter. So, she was hoping to still have a meeting with Shuni Raleigh where perhaps all of this could blow over. She was hoping that when Shuni Raleigh threatened to walk, that she was maybe just being a little irrational or a little over emotional, but that with the benefit of a night to sleep on it or with the opportunity to, to speak face to face, maybe she might have been able to climb down off the ledge. So, Catherine Martin's aspiration was to still try and keep Shuni Raleigh in the job. And she went on prime time and went out and got into the car and went out to Montrose, still hoping to be able to talk her down off the ledge. And yet, she went out there. First of all, she agreed to go out there in the first place. She went out there having already delivered the the written scolding that Shuni Rahalik was so dreading, uh, then told Shuni Rahalik that she'd be going out to prime time Uh, that this matter was likely to come up and that if it did she didn't feel like she could reserve her her views that she wouldn't be able to hold back and then moreover because she thought the story was going to break somewhere else she handed the story to rte uh, ostensibly because she didn't want miriam mccallaghan to be put in the spot if she was about to go live in studio and suddenly a different outlet broke a story that miriam needed to get on top of but nonetheless what ultimately happened is that the minister handed rte the story and said by the way if you'd like to ask me on this I'm perfectly happy to take questions. Mm-hmm. And so all of that, uh, handing to the story, yeah. inviting a verbal scolding when she was trying to keep Junior Raleigh in the job. And here's the thing. Yeah. Apparently not expecting Miriam McCallaghan to ask her whether she had confidence in the chair of the board. Now, like that's that's the most rudimentary thing. Like there isn't a press handler or a media advisor or any kind of media trainer in the country that would tell that would tell you that, that question's not going to come up i mean the idea that the minister genuinely was hoping to salvage the situation but gave her the written scolding went on tv to give her the oral scolding uh, and and genuinely was being so peeved about the whole thing knowing her position was so precarious and didn't expect to be asked mm. whether she was happy with Junior Rallying in the job like that. That's baffling. But this story—that's why the story moved on so much now because it's not about mm. what RTE knew now. It's about well, is the minister has she got her head screwed on when it comes to this?
2: Okay, but who was? Well, I'm not asking you to say. Uh, you're welcome to say it if you want Who was going to break uh, this story uh, is the question that comes to my mind because uh, they must be very much uh, grieved that after their work on this story that the minister handed it to RTE.
7: Yeah, I mean, I, I, it wasn't me in this instance, but I've been in that situation before where, where people have basically announced publicly the uh, responses to my press queries and I'm a bit peeved when when your scoop is basically handed to somebody else. Uh, I don't know for certain, the minister has referred to there being uh, multiple media queries. Uh, I, I'm fairly confident for one at least uh, that the Irish Independent were working on it and that they were likely to lead with it in the following morning's newspaper anyway. Uh, so they would understandably have been a bit aggrieved that effectively the story was handed to primetime and then for mm. today, out on the national airwaves. Uh, I don't know anyone else, but the the one thing that's worth bearing in mind is that Catherine Martin had given the coalition leaders and their inner circles of staff a heads up ahead of going in prime time that there was an issue. And once you start to spread it outside of your your own personal circle and you give it to the Taoiseach and the Taunashta and the environment minister Mm. and all of the handlers and all of the advisors that they have, once you introduce it to a bigger circle, there's always a the prospect that it's going to get out that way. Mm. I mean, it's a little bit like the, the, the COVID stuff and you could, you know, occasionally having ministers getting very annoyed that Neffitt's advice had been leaked to the media before it was announced by the government, people wondering who that was. Well, the simple truth is when you've got 15 cabinet ministers and they've all got special advisors and three of them have chiefs of staff and all of that, the more people you bring into the circle, the leakier the circle is going to get. And, and that's how the story began to get out mm, yep. on Thursday night before Captain Martin went on TV. Yeah, and I,
2: I think Fjellan Sheehan uh, is saying as much uh, in the Irish Independent today that they would have run that story on Friday morning. But then there is uh, the issue of Of Kevin Backhurst the current director general sitting beside Shuni Rahali the chair uh, when she said that they had no role in signing off on this exit package uh, for Richard, Richard Collins that's been called into question understandably so hasn't it?
7: Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. Because um, the, the, I mean, it, it stands to reason that if the minister was prepared to go on TV last Thursday night and give both barrels to the RTE chair for leading her down the garden path, well, which uh, Kevin Backhurst was, was also in possession of that information. Moreover, he sat in at the meeting chaired by Shunir Ali, where the Collins package was signed off. So the idea of him apparently sitting in the meeting, effectively sitting there mute allowing Shuni Raleigh to give the minister the wrong information and not speaking up to correct her, um, that that does raise questions as to why he was so silent as he was. This was something which came up quite a bit in the committee on Tuesday evening. Um, and Catherine Martin said, well, you know, it's it's not really my beef. And I, I'm, you know, Kevin Backhurst doesn't answer to me. And she made this point more clearly in the doll yesterday, where she said the DG answers to the chair. And the chair answers to the me. And therefore, the only person that the minister has any interest in the conduct of is the chair. And the the business of the DG is really none of her concern. Now, that might seem like it's splitting hairs a little bit. But it would mean that if if the minister were to stand up and say, listen, I'm really not happy that the DG basically sat there and allowed me to be you know, shown up the garden path, um, then you'd have serious questions because it would sound like the minister responsible for RTE was meddling or casting aspersions on the person who was ultimately responsible for the output of RTE. And that would be crossing an editorial line that I don't think a lot of people would be happy with. So although it, it might well be the case secretly, that Catherine Martin is annoyed that nobody else spoke up in the meeting. Legally speaking, Shun Niralig was her her point of contact, her interface, if you like, uh, with RTG, and it's not her business uh, whether someone else is sitting there mute. Uh, but of course, that didn't stop mm-hmm. the likes of um, our own Senator Shane Castles or indeed a lot of other members uh, of the, the media committee on Tuesday night, including Peter, Peter Fitzpatrick as well, mm-hmm. uh, speaking up to say that they, they didn't really think it was tenable that the minister would be so peeved with the chair. And yet the DG was there, also perhaps guilty of a sin of omission by, by not speaking up at the time. Uh, for what it's worth, by the way, I did ask this to RTG on Monday because mm. uh, I did foresee the the prospect of Kevin Backhurst being dragged into this row precisely because he was present at every level but didn't appear to speak up. Um, and what RTG told me is that it was Kevin Backhurst himself who brought these issues to attention mm. of Shuni Ralik? that after the meeting on Wednesday uh, that the DG realising that there had been you know a, a charitably you might say a mm. mix-up uh, went to the director went to the chair rather uh, and said listen I, I think you might have gotten the think you might have gotten things yeah. a bit wrong on that front mm. and Shuni went away and checked the records and realised mm. that she had so RTE are officially taking the position that although the DG doesn't answer to the minister anyway mm. he was actually the one who got the ball rolling on trying to correct the record
2: Yeah that he wasn't out making the tea. He was there, he heard it uh, and he mentioned it afterwards to the chair rather than embarrass her during the meeting uh, and uh, that prompted her to bring it to the attention of the minister. The minister uh, seems to be very much in the clear at this stage and that's the end of that chapter. So we close uh, 172. Let's go to 173 it it seems and uh, (laughs) the the, the David Nally story uh, that uh, certainly has been raising eye Browse, hasn't it?
7: Yeah, so pe- people might not be familiar with David Nally because obviously he wasn't an on-screen personality but David Nally uh, was effectively the, I am not—and couldn't even be sure exactly what title you would give him, but he was effectively uh, the director of Primetime uh, for a couple of years. He left uh, in fairly sudden circumstances a couple of years ago he was moved into a new side role as some sort of uh, freelance consultant type character within RTÉ. A role that didn't
2: exist but was created for Mr. Nally because... Uh, he uh, was, uh, findings up were upheld against this man, uh, which yeah. uh, Neve Smith said uh, followed an investigation that cost in uh, the region of a six-figure num- uh, number, yeah.
7: Yeah, so whatever had happened inside RTE, RTE spent six figures trying to get to the bottom of it. They decided at the end of that that it was best for David Nally to vacate the job that he was previously in. This new title, as you say, was created for him. It was a title which, by the way, I also understand carried a six-figure salary Mm. uh, from which the the role was effectively then made redundant 12 months later. So the job having been created for him was phased out and because in that instance he was being removed from a job uh, which he didn't ostensibly have have done anything wrong to lose. Um, He resulted then in in ultimately getting some sort of significant payoff as well and that that is something which um, is not subject to any major disclosure as it stands right now because uh, David Nally was not a member of the senior leadership team and therefore there's no obligation to include a note in your annual accounts uh, to say that this person was paid off. So mm. we don't fully understand exactly what details he was given, but I, I suppose what it does do uh, really is it means that Chapter 173 of this story is, is a little bit like Chapter 171, where again we're going back to, well, hang on, wh- why is it that people um, who who are being you know phased away, why is it appropriate for these people to be given such big salaries? Mm. I mean, in, in the instance of David Nally, the role. That he was moved out from and made redundant from, it appears that he had done nothing wrong to, to lose that role in the first place. The position was being made redundant, and therefore he had to be given money to, to tolerate his job going away. But there, there will be people inside who'll wonder: well, if Orti spent six figures investigating some previous other altercation mm. or some other incident of some sort, and uh, that resulted in David Nally having to lose the job that he was existing in, why was he given a new role in the organisation at all? What, well, if, was, if it was yeah. well, there was said was to be him? an
2: altercation. Uh, with Fran McNulty uh, and other allegations against Davis uh, Nally and uh, the... Uh, allegations were upheld uh, and Neil Smith was saying, well, why wasn't there disciplinary action? Uh, and why was it that instead of there being disciplinary action, a new job was created, uh, a job that didn't exist before? A new cost for RTE uh, was uh, the result of all of that. And he was moved into that. And 18 months later, he left and got a golden handshake.
7: Yeah, because this is it. Because if you if you were to rewind eighteen months and you say, right, well, if he has done something which warrants removing from the previous job he had as the overall director of primetime or some parallel title to that, um, if he was no longer worthy of that job, then the, effectively, why was he retained within the institution at all? Uh, and what what were the circumstances or what was the motivation behind the idea of creating a new parallel title where he could still be around if the outcome of the previous investigation was that basically he should no longer be involved in in the creation of current affairs programming. So that that's another one we'll have to get to the bottom of. And this is something which, again, the media committee is still hoping to investigate. Uh, they have now um, issued a request for some spec around the handling of that. They have also now uh, independently, now that she's no longer within RTÉ, they have asked for Shunia Ratley to come back in to give her account of, What went down faithfully last Thursday, this time last week. Uh, And they have also asked for uh, a now departed civil servant within the Department of Tourism and Media. Uh, Her name is Catherine Licken. She was the Secretary General until last month. Uh, We have to stress that she did leave for entirely unrelated reasons. She had been a Secretary General in that department in its various iterations for seven years. So her tenure was up. She had completed her career in the public service. So she retired uh, last month. So there's nothing untoward about that. Uh, But nonetheless, she was the person who received much of the correspondence and phone calls from Shuni Raleigh about the handling of exits and letting them know that there had been certain deals reached, maybe or maybe not being told that directors had direct oversight of those things. Um, the department had, or the, the committee rather, had asked for her two days ago and only found out belatedly that the department didn't feel it was appropriate to accept an invite on behalf of somebody who was no longer on its payroll and um, quite a few members were disappointed with that as it turned mm, out last Thursday right? so, yeah. or last Tuesday so, so nonetheless, they're looking for her so they're basically looking for Shuni Raleigh, they're looking for Catherine Licken, they were the two people at opposite ends of the phone call for Mm. most of these conversations in the last six months Uh, and of course separately now looking for more spec about um, the, the David Nally deal and also investigating whether there still might be other circumstances where the deal of Richard Collins or, or anyone else might possibly be liable to some kind of disclosure within the office or, or some other parallel mm. process. So but there's, there's a good way to go. Yeah.
2: Sure. And if D. Forbes is too sick to attend that maybe she could give evidence I- in writing, I think uh, as another suggestion. Gavin, we we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much as always for joining Thank us on the programme. Much appreciated. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and a columnist with The Mead Chronicle. Michael,
5: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. FM
2: just a, a couple of comments coming to us uh, this morning let me bring them to you somebody's saying with all of the hoo-ha and RTE between RTE and the government not knowing anything about everything Ireland was known as uh, the land of saints and scholars now we will be known as uh, the land of liars and scammers thank you Betty Daly for your message uh, James Adrada says RTE Gate is uh, the best drama RTE have ever produced can't believe we're past 170 episodes can't wait for season two thank you James as well for your message uh, another text from Deirdre who says this RTA story is just never going to go away they should make a, a film of it it would be a box office smash uh, and uh, she says she might get uh, down on one knee today uh, because it's a leap year well best of luck to you Deirdre. Uh, Mary Cassidy uh, says um, uh, oh a bigger period." that's a, a private message Mary uh, Get that information that you're looking for to you uh, in the next couple of minutes. Uh, But let's uh, turn our attention to a situation that workers in Tara Mines have been in for some time. Uh, As you know, uh, they've been getting some support uh, from Tara Mines since uh, they've been laid off. uh, But that time uh, is running out for them.
1: A company called Belighton make massive profits out of a big... an Irish natural resource for for many many years Uh, and all of a sudden last June started to turn the screw, to squeeze the the workers in terms of pay, terms and conditions. Um, An incredible situation where 700 workers nearly uh, lost their jobs directly and up to 2,000 workers in total uh, had their jobs uh, completely um, pushed aside. And in that eight months the management of tar mines have done their damnedest to bring a wrecking ball to the terms, pay, and conditions of those workers. They've used the labor resolution infrastructure of the state to harry and push um, the trade unions to try and relinquish the rights of those workers uh, in that scenario. And, you know, I remember at the time Leo Vreiker promised that everything would be done to protect workers, and I'd say. Nothing has been done to protect workers. In actual fact, Tara Mines have sought to um, renew their mining licenses, have put in applications for solar farms, have gone on as business as usual with the state, and yet they have been fighting and hammering uh, the workers within Tara Mines. And even the local intro office, I understand, has you know, been inundated with uh, requests for transfers from their workers because that office has been literally hammered with all the new people looking for uh, income uh, uh, supports from the social welfare. And one thing I will say is, the only bulwark that has existed for the rights of those workers has been the trade unions, Sip to Unite and Connect. They have been the only line of defence for those workers. But I would say Minister, this is really important, time is running out because the social welfare will change in four weeks for most of those workers, which will mean that they will go from their payments to actually a means-tested payment. So many of them will fall to incomes of about maybe 15 or 20 euros now on a weekly basis because those incomes will be uh, means-tested. So time is rapidly running out for hundreds and hundreds of workers in Meath, Many of those workers, even who have taken part-time jobs, have had to relinquish social welfare and um, for a, a, the, the small income that they're receiving for those part-time jobs. So what, what, what I'm saying to yourself is there needs to be a rebalancing of the relationship between trade unions and workers, otherwise, there will be a race to the bottom. Wow.
2: It really is. Uh, dar circumstances uh, that the Tara Mines workers find themselves in, undoubtedly coming under a, a lot of pressure as uh, the clock ticks down. That was Padre Bean raising that issue in the Dáil yesterday. Ain't 2 founder and leader in TD for Mead West. Now, if you'd like to comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is zero four one nine eight three two thousand. Text or WhatsApp. 86 658 Email michael at lmfm.ie Michael, michael Reid on, on
5: LMFM
2: now, Yesterday uh, the Children's uh, Alliance Advocate uh, for the introduction of uh, Child Rights Impact Assessment during times of emergency launched a report Building Children's Futures Using Children's Right to Recover from the Global Pandemic This was a project uh, that has been funded by the EU Commission and led by The Children's Rights Alliance in conjunction with uh, some of its partners. We're joined by the Chief Executive of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance, Tanya Ward and we'll be speaking with one of uh, the young people who was involved in this project in a moment. Good morning to you first of all though Tanya and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. We all remember Covid all too well but thankfully it seems uh, uh, in some ways a a very long time ago but it its impact continues to be felt, I would imagine, with young people based on some of the comments you've made. You say it's deeply worrying to see the extent of the impact that some decisions made during the pandemic had on young people and continue to have on them.
5: That's right, Sharon. This This report has actually been written by a group of young people that uh, came together to do a consultation with children and young people throughout the country but they also actually got to interview some of the decision makers who made the decisions around COVID and that's really unique because for example, I haven't had a chance to talk to any of the key decision makers you're going to hear from Letitia later on really? um, in the interview but I haven't had a chance to talk to the decision makers to ask them why they did what they did and I suppose the reason why we've been able to do the project in this way is because the department of, of children equality integration youth and disability is actually part of this project and is going to take the recommendations forward uh, and hopefully you know shape what government does when when future emergencies happen because i don't know if you saw The World Health Organization mentioned quite recently, you know, there's another potential COVID in in the offing. There could be other viruses, but there's other emergencies ahead of us. And I suppose one of the things that we need to learn from from, from COVID is to make sure we need to make the interests of children and young people central uh, when those big emergencies happen. Because what comes through this piece of work from the young people, is that really what the decision makers revealed to them is that children weren't really taught about in the initial phases um, of the emergency. The focus was on the virus, the impact it was having on people's health, um, and they didn't really start thinking about, oh, well, what, what impact are these restrictions having on children and young people? It was only after they understood how the virus worked and whether it impacted on children and young people or not. Yeah. Um, and what, what what's interesting from the young people who interviewed the decision makers, you know, they, you know, the young people questioned the closure of schools, actually, and whether that was the right thing. They also question, actually, the closure of play facilities and recreation facilities and sports facilities. And, in fact, in other countries, that didn't happen. In Scotland, they kept they kept their playgrounds open. Um, and when you look at the damage done to children and young people, what they are saying, that it, how it impacted them, you know, they missed out not only in school and mm-hmm. learning, but it was like from sport and play friendships, it contributed to enormous levels of boredom and sadness and annoyance. But the other thing coming through, and I think this is really important because at the time people were kind of, that seemed to be delighted about the online learning dimension. And I mean, I, I had major concerns about it because I knew it doesn't work for particularly younger children. But they were reporting here, you know, the children that they consulted said there were massive technical difficulties. The online classes were often chaotic. There were lots of children that found it really hard to get set up. And then for Traveller children there was no support at all and for parents with children with disabilities they were completely isolated and there was no support for them either and one of the things I think that we have to learn and I think this is a major mistake when it comes to COVID and the young people pick this up is because there was this focus on getting the vaccine out, that's the main thing that the health system is trying to do and obviously Ireland was really successful in that they actually redirected and the young people pick this up and question it they redirected the frontline services for children with disabilities, let's say your therapist, your occupational therapist, et cetera, all on psychologists, all towards the vaccine effort. And there's big questions about that because today so many.
3: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
5: Children missed out not having those therapies. We have massive waiting lists now, mm. and we've many children who've lost years of development. We even have some children who've ended up in the care of two because their families can't cope anymore. Those outcomes shouldn't have happened. And, uh, and you put that we,
2: down to the decisions made during uh, COVID. Yeah, yeah, that's
5: right. Yeah, yeah okay. I mean, like mm. you know, I I I know the government's going to review this soon. I think there's big questions about the numbers of uh, school closures that happened. I definitely think the last couple of closures were were not necessary uh, to protect against the spread of the virus. But I do think... There's questions asked about the vaccine effort and whether other services could have been used and not just services that are really for very vulnerable children and young people really need them. Okay. Uh, redirecting them away, I think, there's big good questions about
2: mm. that. OK, I, I'm anxious to speak to Letitia uh, to hear firsthand. Uh, before before uh, I do, uh, tell me a, a little bit more about all of the children involved in this, because there were 50 children involved. Uh, how were they chosen and what age groups?
5: So overall, um, we had Faroga working with us and the University of Galway uh, working with us, and we would have put out a call. We've hundred and fifty member organisations, and one of the big things is there's lots of really healthy and you know uh, uh, really far-reaching consultation groups in Ireland that work with children and young people, and they nominated the children and young people to take part and. We wanted to really get to what actually happened, not for all children, but what happened for those marginalized children, traveler children, children with disabilities, refugee children. How did this impact on them? Um, and then they worked as a group over a period of time. They worked online and um, they uh, managed a consultation uh, throughout the country. And then they actually went and met decision makers who were centrally involved in Dublin and making the core decisions about what happened in covid
2: Okay, let's uh, hear from Letitia. Good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, You're 19 now, you're one of uh, the 50 children, uh, a representative from the Children and Young Persons Advisory Group. Uh, But you would have been 15 uh, when COVID came to our shores. Tell us a little bit about this project and how you and the rest of the group have been involved in the project and your experience of it up to now.
8: Um, yeah, so I was on the youth advisory group. So there was eight of us and there was a mix of gender and age and where we were associated across the country and each of us represented um, a different group. For example, I represented the Irish Traveller Movement Youth Forum, but um, others represented um, organisations such as Freuge, Corlin and Old, Your Child, etc. Um, I suppose the youth advisory group started late 2022 and we had meetings online and we also had meetings on, in person. And I think that was really great for the group because you could feel more comfortable and bond as a group um, when meeting in person. Um, out the eight was then, five was actually went on and got extra training as well then in the University of Galway campus grounds. And with that, the five of us were able to co-conduct interviews then with Danielle and Natasha with decision makers that had made the decisions around COVID-19 at the time.
2: Yeah, that was one of uh, the really uh, unique parts of, of uh, this uh, that you uh, and uh, your young colleagues not only helped to design the research but you also got to conduct those interviews with the important decision makers. What was your experience of doing that?
8: Um I think it was really good. It's something that obviously is so unique and um we were also treated like adults on it. So we weren't treated as people that were as young as 15 co-conducting the interviews and it was great also to have got that extra training and that training that we'll be able to take with us um, beyond this group also and it was also good because obviously we were directly impacted by COVID-19 so it was also um, great to see actually how these decisions were made and to see that maybe some decision makers had no choice to make these decisions and that you also could see how other decisions could have been made as well if children were just took into account first.
2: It's unusual for young people to be involved like this. Why do you think it's important for young people to be involved in projects like this?
8: Um, Well, I think in uh, the young people across the country, it's really evolving. And in reality, we are the future of this country and the decisions that are being made at the moment are going to directly impact us the most. And I think it's great that, you know, the young people of Ireland want to be involved in this. The people that are to be involved now in um, youth organisations such as or Corlin and Ogre, the National Youth Assembly of Ireland, You know, it has increased so much and people want to be involved in politics and want to be involved in activism. And in reality, it's these projects where the children and and young people are at the table with decision makers is really what the future of Ireland needs.
2: Mm -hmm. A chance for you to shape your future. How can we make sure that more children and young people are able to have their voices heard?
8: I think one of the main things is is the highlight of the importance of registering your vote and if you are at the age that you actually use your vote, like from communicating with the youth advisory group, I know that the age of us will use our vote when we are of age and those of us that are, are using our vote and it's so important to know that, that your vote can make such a detrimental change with local elections, with referendums, with general elections activism is such a huge part of Ireland now for young people so I think that decision-makers and people in government need to be actively um, put into consideration and communication with um, groups and organizations such as the National Youth Assembly, Freud, Corlan and OG. I think also more funding needs to be put into these organizations because better funding leads for better facilities I think we really need to work on that. We want young people going to their local action group and organisations on a Friday night and not going to a disco, for example. And then also with things like this also, sometimes a minority voice um, can really be important. But for as a young Irish traveller woman, sometimes I feel even when I want to be heard, and I'm trying to be heard, I still feel like I'm not being heard. So it's, really important that if young people do want to use their voice that they know that their voice matters and it's important and it's respected.
2: Indeed, well we're hearing you loud and clear this morning Letitia, tell us a, a little bit more about this project and what you've learned from being part of the advisory group and doing the research
8: um, I've learned re- really how, the, I've learned how the decisions were made and even though I've more I've more of a Viewpoint now of the decisions that were made that directly did impact me. I've also learned that your voice does matter and you can make a change even at such a young age. And I'm more confident now and being involved in things like this and using my voice, and I have the extra training. And I think also, like when meeting in person last year, when all of us were around the table, and even though we were all from different backgrounds and different ages and we were at different levels in school when COVID-19 did happen the fact that we had so many issues that were the same if it was um, feeling isolated or struggling with our mental health feeling yeah. like we were falling behind in school even though at a time that we felt so alone it was actually we were all together fighting the one cause at the one time
2: um, what would you like to see happen now as a result of your research and the work that you've done on this
8: I feel now that we have a standpoint of if something like this happens again, or at least we know the wrongs that have been made and that there won't be as much detrimental and long-lasting um, effects across the country for young people if something like this was to unfortunately happen again.
2: OK, will you do me a favour? Don't tell me which way you're going to vote in the referendum on the 8th, but uh, do tell me, have you registered to vote?
8: Yeah, I registered to vote before I was 18, so I'll be definitely using my vote.
2: Very good. And I have one last question for you, and I think I know the answer. Um, Are you hoping to have a career in politics? Yes, yeah. I thought that might be the case. (laughs) Very good, Letitia. Well, I think uh, a very good start here this morning. Uh, uh, Very uh, impressive uh, to listen to you speak about the issues that matter to you. And great to have a young voice uh, on our programme. Tanya, um, this obviously is unique research and very important research and may become all the more important uh, because already we're seeing similar Uh, problems with measles to what we saw with Covid uh, but uh, we're told that we're definitely going to have another pandemic uh, and there are lessons to be learned uh, before uh, we see that situation again.
5: That's right Um, and I think what's very useful from the research uh, that's been done by the, the young people is that They've been able to kind of pinpoint areas where a a different direction was potentially possible. Uh, So, for example, you know, they should have kept the the play and recreation spaces open. I think one of the underlying problems was, you know, it was a very narrow lens, which was all looked upon. And, of course, we were very successful in Ireland in getting the vaccine out, but the lens was too narrow. From the very beginning, they should have been thinking about children and young people. They should have been uh, uh, maybe going through, the uh, doing, and you can do a quick analysis. Like a decision maker, even in a short period of time, could have done an analysis. What impact is it going to have? I think the young people also talked about they should have been consulted in some way. Uh, and there's actually lots of examples where young people in Ireland have been consulted and very quickly. Um, so the Department of Children once did a consultation very quickly with children on the impact of Brexit. And they came together and gave them amazing insights. And that, and that went in and fed a cabinet decision on what Ireland should have done, uh, should do on, on Brexit. So it is possible. Um, so I think going forward, what's really important is uh, in getting ready for the next pandemic. Um, the, the government should be implementing what's called child rights impact assessments where they do assessments about what impact is our decision going to have on children and young people. That actually happened in Scotland when the pandemic happened and the outcomes were quite different in Scotland for children and young people. They did keep their schools open for uh, uh, disadvantaged and vulnerable children. So the kind of things we're dealing with in Ireland at the moment where there are lots of children who've disengaged from the education system and actually there's a surge now in children seeking TUSLA support and TUSLA's really struggling to try and meet the demands. You're not necessarily seeing the same level of need and demand uh, in other parts of Europe because they kept those services open and I'm hoping going forward that the government does find a way to consult with children and young people even a very quick way Uh, so it will help them make the right decision when we deal with the next pandemic or the next national emergency. Indeed.
2: Tanya, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Letitia, thank you uh, as well. Pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Tanya Ward is uh, Chief Executive of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance and Letitia is age 19 one of the 50 young people uh, who made up the Children and Young Persons Advisory Group.
5: Michael Michael
3: Reed
2: on LMFM. Uh, the Oireachtas uh, Justice Committee, as you know, has been hearing uh, from uh, people in relation to legislation which will introduce facial recognition technology. It's published its pre-legislative scrutiny report into this law and it's recommending that the Minister... Uh, err on the side of caution let's uh, speak now to Olga Cronin a senior policy officer with the Irish Council of Civil Liberties a very good morning to you Olga and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the program uh, this morning the committee seems to have a a lot of questions uh, as much as it does recommendations uh, but it it certainly seems uh, to be of uh, the belief uh, that this shouldn't be rushed into
9: Absolutely, Michael. Um, and thanks for having having us on. Yeah, look, you know, um, there were, you know, ICCL went before the committee, Digital Rights Ireland went before the committee, the Law Society of Ireland, the DPC, and we all raised significant concerns at, at the very, even at the very most basic level, um, in terms of the intention of, like, the use intention of the guards of how they want to use it, um, uh, and even, like, for example, the committee have asked for the rationale for using it to be to be published. So these are very, very b- basic questions. What pictures they want to use, what imagery, what databases. Um, so like you said, um, there's been many questions within those recommendations. Um, and I think those questions have to be answered first. And, and that, including I'm sorry. The, the questions about just mm-hmm. apologies, the, yeah. the, the fact that they've asked um, the, gar- the Justice Minister apologies to um, address the concerns around discrimination, accuracy and bias. All of those are very foundational mm. questions, Michael. You and know, these are issues that you've been on. raising yeah.
2: since uh, this has been first mooted. Uh, but if it is introduced uh, and Gardee can use facial recognition technology, the committee is also recommended re- that it, it should be reviewed on an ongoing basis uh, by a, a judge. Yes, Um
9: that's, yes, they have said that, and they, I think they also recommended that there would be pre-approval from a judge, which would be which would be a significant safeguard. Um, but again, I think I would just go back to those very very fundamental questions. Like before, we can start talking about introducing safeguards in terms of how it would be used. We have to know how it would be used, and we have to know what it would be using in terms of in terms of using of its intended intended use. Like a significant point that came up in the hearings was. Um, let's say the accuracy figure that the guards were relying upon, in order to push this forward, and they were saying, you know, we have these figures from NIST, which is this um, agency, federal agency in the US, which tests algorithms for their accuracy, um, and it was being put out there that there's this 99% accuracy rate, and as Dr. Bibi Birani from Trinity College Dublin um, ha- kind of di- has has since dismantled that argument, given. Um, the algorithm aside the test that the guards have been have and the figure that they've put forward it, it is not comparing like with like so for example that 99 percent figure is based on images that are essentially perfect portraits against perfect perfect portraits mm. whereas this bill is based on images taken from cctv otherwise known as in the wild where you know a chin could be missing a frown could be missing eyes could be closed you know mm. so um they're not comparing like with like, and, and and that's why I'm going back to those very, very fundamental questions that have to be asked before we go down the road of, okay, this will, this will protect us. Like, how do the guards, how do the guards want to use it? What do they want to use? And um, where's the necessity proportionality assessment to show that this is actually necessary in Irish society? Um and also, how will the how will the, the minister for justice address those discrimination bias and accuracy concerns? Mm. Those are fundamental questions. It shouldn't go any further until those are answered.
2: I suppose we all know, Olga, that uh, if we go to take a, a photograph, we hope that it's going to be a masterpiece. Uh, but it's not always uh, the case, and that quite often, uh, the subject is obscured by something or other, and therein lies the problem. But it's not just the problem that you have with Fort accuracy, uh, because uh, while it may be accurate at ad- identifying white males, uh, it, it falls down elsewhere, does it not?
9: Absolutely, yeah. So, so exactly. So there is an issue with accuracy around FRT, but when it fails, it doesn't fail equally, and um, and there's a disproportionate um, impact on people of people who are not white and not males, and um, and I suppose I think I might say this too before that, you know. It's, it's so important that the minister addresses that concern and explains how they will address that concern, because um, first of all, it's very difficult to get the full information from these private companies that create these tools. Um, but also, if we don't get a satisfactory answer to that question, then we are essentially being asked to accept the introduction of a discriminatory tool into Irish policing. And I, I don't think that you know most people in Ireland would accept that. Um, they wouldn't accept it in other circumstances. So I don't see why we should accept it in this.
2: Mm. And then there's the question of uh, what would these private companies do with the data that would be gathered uh, as a result of this surveillance? Uh, and there's many questions, I, I think, that uh, the committee have uh, about data.
9: Yeah, there's many questions about it. And again, it goes back to that the very basic questions as to what exactly the guards want to do. You know, we heard in the committee Um, The Guard Commissioner and the Chief Information Information Officer there said on a number of occasions that they don't want to use a database and that this is not for identification. But that is in stark contrast with what the bill is um, proposing to provide. So um, there's a lot of, I think that there was a lot of confusion at the hearing in some ways. And I think that the report from the committee is seeking to try and um, sort out that confusion. But that confusion will only be sorted out if we get the answers from both the Guards and the Justice um, Department hmm. before it goes any further, like I
2: said. And do you expect that it will go further? I, I mean, can this report be ignored? Well,
9: this is the, this is a, a very good question, <laughs> Michael. Hmm. You know, a pre-legislative scrutiny report is and, the, and its recommendations is only going to be as strong um, as its recommendations are up- upheld. You know, from ICCL's perspective, we will be, you know, following up with the Minister and the Guards on these questions. Um, And we will be absolutely advocating for them to be answered before it goes any further. Um, And we're hoping that members of the committee will also be pushing for those answers. You know, the committee, it's a committee of 14 members, um, uh, many of whom, majority of whom are in government. So given that this bill is being pushed forward by government we're really hoping that the members of the committee themselves will be st- will continue to seek answers to these questions as it goes through the Oireachtas.
2: Okay, and um, what if uh, the legislation is enacted uh, whilst these questions remain unanswered and uh, if you or I are identified uh, and most likely uh, you wrongly identified uh, because you're a woman and I'm a man uh, by FORT. Uh, what would be the consequence uh, if that was established uh, that the technology got it wrong that you were wrongly identified
9: well again that's a very good question um, I know that in the recommendations they have recommended that there be a, a remedy mechanism put in place for a person um, but like I suppose the the answer is it's kind of unknown like let's say a bill is passed and it's so it's poor and it's it's imprecise and it's unforeseeable um, and and therefore not in line with EU law, you know, the 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 guards could find themselves in a lot of trouble there in terms of, let's say, evidence that you know can't be relied upon or or something like that. Um, but I mean, you know, remedies for misidentification, it, you know, this is such a new area and it's such a novel piece of technology that we're still finding our way here. Mm. You know, we've seen cases in the US. I think I've mentioned this before where people have been wrongly identified and um, detained. Um, and you know, it's taken them a long time to find out that even FRT was involved in that um, misidentification. Mm-hmm. We're seeing cases. We're seeing cases on the on the streets in London at the at the moment where people are stopped, misidentified by FRT, um, and the police officers in London have a chat with them. You know, have a different, have a you know, maybe ask them a couple of questions or run another check, and then they're like, "Oh, sorry, look, you're not the right person. You're not okay. the person that we're looking for. You can you can head on." Um, now you might say well you know um that's a, that's just an inconvenience but um it, it, it's mm. it's it's really not you know people shouldn't be should people should be able to walk down the street mm. without having to be stopped in that yeah
2: way. well I, I don't know it, it, it's frightening I wouldn't like the idea of uh, that um uh, and uh, to be charged then is a, another thing I certainly wouldn't like that uh, to be charged with any crime uh, wrongly uh, would be dreadfully upsetting for anybody Uh, but uh, as you say then you could be detained what if you're prosecuted what if you're given a prison sentence uh, and it's only after the event that that is established Uh, i mean you could spend some time in prison uh, and then some time after that proving that it was a miscarriage of justice what then
9: exactly um i mean i I think that if um if there was a, a government TD on the radio at and they would say, that's never going to happen. You know, this will always be a human and the, there will be always be a human in the loop. And um, this kind of safeguard that is put forward often as the kind of, you know, the, the kind of the means to protect us from dodgy technology. Um, but we have seen in other jurisdictions that, you know, there's a kind of confirmation bias problem where a police officer will kind of go with what the computer says. Um, Now, you would hope that it wouldn't get to the point that you would be actually convicted upon that. Mm. You know, I think, you know, there could be, um, there could be, uh, you know, safeguards to prevent that. Um, But but really, at at the end of the day, Michael, like, you know, we have a right to, um, we have rights to privacy, we have rights to non-discrimination, we have rights to, you know, freedom of assembly and to be uh, a face in a crowd to anonymity, you know, we're... We can't be placed in a, a kind of a virtual lineup, mm, mm. you know, without our without our knowledge and um without cause, you mm, know. Mm. So and that is what
2: FRT does. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's over to the Minister, obviously. Uh, We leave it there for the moment, Olga. Thank you, as always, for joining us today. Olga Cronin, Senior Policy Officer with uh, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties.
3: Michael Reid on LMFM. Well,
2: you've been hearing now for a couple of weeks uh, that uh, the Department of Integration has signed a contract with uh, the D-Hotel in Drogheda under that contract. 500 people who are seeking international protection in this country are to make the hotel their home. This is a contract that is to last over the next two years. The first of those people, as we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks, are due to move in from the 5th of March, uh, which will be on Tuesday of next week. Our understanding is that the first residents will start actually moving in on Sunday of this week. But there's a spanner in the works, it seems, and a letter that has been seen by LMFM has raised serious concerns with the D Hotel about it proceeding as planned. Uh, it's a question over insurance uh, and a claim that the hotel has not been engaging constructively. Uh, with its neighbours on insurance for the block, that is, uh, together with uh, the Scotch Hall shopping centre. This letter says it will not be possible to maintain the insurance policy in its current form to include cover for the hotel and that the hotel will have to be excised from the policy and a separate insurance policy put in place to cover that risk. Uh, The same letter also Uh, refers to another consequence for the proposed change, uh, and that is uh, the necessity to obtain a new fire safety certificate. Uh, And uh, this is uh, now uh, down to the wire. Uh, the letter actually reads, as matters stand, both uh, the D-Hotel and the department now intend to proceed with the contract to accommodate between four and 500 vulnerable individuals from Tuesday, the 5th of March, next in a premises which does not comply with fire safety regulations and or without a fire safety certificate. And due to the manner in which your client and the department is dealing with this in a property which may not have insurance cover. We find uh, the utter disregard for health and safety and well-being of uh, the international protection applicants, the tenants and the customers of uh, the shopping centre and the 200, 240 residents of uh, the apartment complex quite astonishing, uh, this letter says. And it, it remains, uh, of course, a matter for the chief fire officer in County Loud to take the steps necessary to deal with the issues uh, that have been mentioned. As I say, this is uh, just part of a a letter uh, that we've seen from a firm of uh, solicitors uh, to the Minister and to uh, the D Hotel and uh, that the Chief Fire Officer was copied on this correspondence as well. Uh, we spoke to the D-Hotel, or at least we spoke to a spokesperson for the D-Hotel. They told us, uh, no comment, do you need to revert uh, to the chief fire officer? We spoke to the chief fire officer, Eamon Wolf, uh, who said negotiations are ongoing and that as things stand, uh, he didn't want to make comment on it today. He expects that the issue with fire certificate will be solved in the coming days. Uh, but it's an outstanding issue. And under the circumstances, uh, he doesn't want uh, to make comment on it just yet. Uh, So, uh, on that basis alone, there's a serious problem. There's a claim in this letter that uh, there is a question mark over the insurance for the hotel if it proceeds as planned on the 5th and that there is no fire certificate in place, perhaps, uh, that will be resolved. Uh, I think we'll be hearing more about this over the course of the day today and, indeed, uh, over the coming days uh, because... We're up to the wire, aren't we? Or we're down to the wire. This is 11th hour stuff. uh, And uh, the D Hotel uh, is uh, looking at its plans as we speak uh, and uh, looking at uh, this letter and communicating, it would seem, with the Chief Fire Officer. And uh, I'm sure sorting out its obligations uh, to ensure its premises. Anyway, we thought we'd bring that news to you this morning. We hope to have more on it uh, possibly today, uh, undoubtedly tomorrow. Uh, and it's something that might interest you. If you'd like to comment on it, our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on
5: LMFM.
2: On LMFM. Now, let's uh, hear some of uh, those statements I mentioned earlier on that were made in uh, the doll last night uh, about RTA. Well, <laughs> you need to turn the volume up, Michael.
10: Since your bizarre decision on Thursday to appear on prime time, your actions. And the resignation of Shunni Rahali have dominated the news cycle. And Minister, it's clear that you shouldn't have done that interview. Yesterday, at the media committee, you admitted that you were aware that the former chair was threatening to resign, and yet you went ahead with that interview. In fact, the former chair had indicated that she would resign if a letter was sent, and you sent that letter on Thursday evening. Then your advisers tipped prime time off that there was breaking news and that you would be willing to answer questions about it. Now, I'm not sure if this shows a shocking <clears throat> lack of judgment on your part, Minister, or if this was a setup to remove Shunni Rahali. I just struggle to accept that you could be that incompetent. I also struggle to believe that you didn't expect the interviewer to ask if you had confidence in the former chair. It was extremely disrespectful to the chair and it amounted to an on-air dismissal. Even if you felt that the information you were receiving from the former chair was incomplete or inaccurate, your defence that it would have been wrong to cancel the interview just doesn't hold water with anybody. That is no way to conduct business, especially given the sensitivities of the situation at RTE and the need to steady the ship Instead of steadying the ship, you threw a grenade in. The Minister, since taking office... Right,
2: that's uh, Melda Monster. Obviously, she had more to add, but let's hear from Pater Bay now.
1: So your stewardship of this particular role over the last nine months has led to a situation where things are getting worse in terms of E, And even that issue of the licence fee is important to say this. This government won't make a decision about the licence fee because inertia for this government is a better strategy in the year of an election they simply won't make a decision because they will not risk taking a decision in case it has a negative effect over your election chances with the people of ireland now one of the things that's really frustrating about this fiasco factory is that it is eclipsing so much of what's happening in ireland at the moment you know there is incredible difficulties happening. I can think of the National Children's Hospital, and sometimes I think, is it easier for people to understand a 200,000 euro exit package than a 2.25 billion euro waste of uh, 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 investment in terms of the National Children's Hospital's overspend uh, in the last while? We have 3,150 people who have died as a result of accidents in the HSC uh, over the last five years. 1,100 people who were dead by the time an ambulance arrived because ambulances are getting later and later. 300 million euros spent on Metro North and not a shovel put into the ground. We have actually people in Middleton staying awake at night as human water gauges because of the lack of flood defences. And yet the bandwidth within Leinster House has been pretty much consumed by this ongoing, this rolling omni-shambles which you're involved in, uh, Minister.
2: And let's hear from another local TD, Peter Fitzpatrick.
3: I have confidence in Minister Martin and turning the tide on these scanners. Our vision needs to be very clear, regardless of any damage that has been done in a very limited broadcast in OTE. No wonder people are refraining from paying their TV license. Reform is needed. The people deserve transparency from everybody. It is the time to acknowledge that the entire environment has now changed as a result of the OTE scanners which has exacerbated our funding challenges. As we, the government has failed for too long to address the questions of how to fund public service broadcasting. All public options need to be considered, uh, taking Netherlands from our international counterpart, while considering both ideas put forward by the technical working group and the future of the Media Commission original recommendations. We also need to consider the fact that there was a, there was a decline in, OTA, in, sorry, in TV license receipts and a continuous shift in media consumption patterns. But with that in mind, there was a real opportunity for us to work with the Minister for Tourism, Culture, Art, Gaelic Sport and Media in taking a modern, progressive approach to resolving issues in OTE. It is imperative that we, that we deliver a secure and sustainable source of funding. A future funding must not only be put on, on, on the more sustainable footing, but we must also support other public media services and content producers to continue to provide high-quality public service contents for the benefits of our entire society.
2: Peter Fitzpatrick. Now, some of uh, the comments I were telling you about uh, the questions over the D Hotel uh, and uh, if a fire cert will be in place and if uh, the hotel will be insured uh, for a change of uh, purpose. Uh, Tom in touch saying, I hope to get the insurance of the fire cert very quickly for the D Hotel. Amazing how fast things happen when you want them to. He says, my brother is waiting for a fire cert seven weeks now thanks Tom uh, for that Uh, and a different Tom in touch with us uh, about uh, Covid Uh, actually no it's the same Tom he says they didn't keep the hospital safe Uh, his dad had to be admitted at Christmas time and he didn't have Covid but after 10 days in hospital he picked it up and he died from it 18 days later I never got to see him or hug him heartbroken Tom Oh, well, what a story, Tom. Thank you for that. Uh, We'd Marion Trim in touch with us, uh, saying when I I was working and I was out of work sick for a few weeks, I had to go before a referee doctor. Is this still the practice? Uh, And if so, why are some of uh, the executives uh, allowed not to go into committee? Uh, well, uh, there's, uh, Dee Forbes, for example, uh, who you mentioned in your message, uh, Mary, is no longer an employee. Uh, she's left the organisation and she's a private citizen. Uh, Mag Y says, Michael Drogheda is a major commuter town. Why is there no park and ride facility in Drogheda at Junction 10 uh, on the M1? I think, Mag, uh, some people would say that there is not an official one, but yes, that there is. But uh, we're going to go back to RTE now and we're going to hear some of the contributions from some of the independent TDs yesterday.
11: It's a cosy circle and the cabal has extended and it's a cosy cartel of a cabal. And the money, and it's going on with decades. When I came in here, I was seven, we found out that the wages by top earners at that time were staggering, 800,000 plus. And the fact that you have 20 million put away in a fund uh, that, that you can protect with tax money. There's five of us here in this group here that are self-implied people. We'd love the benefit of being able to put away money, and we talk to the tax when we, when we decide whether people are bogus, self-implied or not. No other company, no other sole trader, no other peewee buckler would get any kind of latitude. And I ask again why is your government protecting RTE, the sacred cow out in Montrose? And why uh, revenue being held off? From doing their business, doing their job, dealing with them, or sending in, as I said, the fraud squad, which I called for the 1st of July last year when this first broke. But no, you're protecting him, and you report and report like everything else. You have a sad legacy of children's hospital, uh, over, massive overspend, broadband, you name it. But this is the bait of all. But this has been enabled, as I said, by the cabal, and the cabal is expanding, and it's, the mire gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And I have a feeling that it'll bring down this government before very long, because there's such a rot in there, it's an endemic rot at the top, not at an ordinary level of people and Miss Doherty and all those people and Miss, Miss, um, the, the former DG, the, the, from and May Forbes, should be brought before here, whether they'll be subpoenaed or whatever else they should be brought in, be held accountable Minister, I don't think that you have the energy or that your government have to tackle it
2: Now Mary, I'm sure you were glad to hear that That was Matty McGrath
11: If I was running RT, it'd be run like a business RT is being funded by this government and they have a stakeholder in it. It's supposed to be national uh, television. All they're doing is selling false information like Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have been given to their own members for many, many years. And it's all one-sided reporting. They have no respect for the people that work in RT. They have been directed by government what to say, when to say it. That's what's wrong with RTE. And I've been a supporter of RTE all my life. But if I was to look at RTE as a business and I look at what they're putting out even at Christmas time, stuff from 50 years ago, no wonder they've been subsidized. If they ran run by Virginia and like the sky, at least they'd be sustainable and they'd be pr- progressive, but they're not. So, Minister. RTE needs to tell both sides of stories and not like government.
2: Oh, that was uh, Richard O'Donoghue. And speaking of RTE 50 years ago...
11: but I take you back a little bit. to 1970, there was a pole
12: transmitter, an antenna on a wooden pole erected south of Ross by RTE, right? In 2001, this is the two sites RTE we have now. In 2001, the current owner bought the farm with a mortgage. In 2003, RTE replaced the wooden pole with an 18 metre mast slightly in a different area. On the 18th of December 2010, the Family who owned the ground, the masses on got a letter claiming adverse possession. Squatters' rights, some RT. This is the lads now that are splashing money all over the country, but can't pay people when they when they use their ground. The family replies stating they were the owners, and this time RT moved around the site and enlarged large area over the years. RT have allowed vote of one place a mask on this site in Ross and who knows they're probably be well paid for that. The land register letter proves RT except that the Canty family are the registered owners of this property. This is David versus Goliath.
2: Right. That's Michael G- Collins uh, with uh, the David and Collide story. Let's uh, go to Kerry.
12: I won't name a
13: person, but the man there's all the bemoaning de- morning and the shouting and the grumbling and the grousing every day who's on a 1,000 euros a day, seven days a week, but as long as I can remember, and that gets get on the, the radio, and he's complaining about politicians, <laughs> but of course his, his motto is complaining about everybody. But tell the people he's getting a 1,000 euros a day, seven days a week with the last how many years and living small away quite happily with it. How does that make sense? And berating every politician that who could try to get or a stone at, and saying that we are all a disgrace, and we are this and we are that, but he's there creaming his thousand euros a day all the, all the same. But, Minister, if we... Look, no one of us is per- perfect. What you did last night, I have to be honest, I wasn't really impressed with it. The way you, you uh, aired our... our the, the business, the way you did it, I thought it was wrong. You should have handled it differently, but I'm not going to right. make hay out of that arrangement anything like that because I don't do that type of thing. But I really think we need a national broadcaster but my God, you need to shake this up. We need to put it right. We need to bring back a reputation and I'll say it thank again, young caller, and I know you would agree with this yourself per- personally. Back over the years, RTE did, did great things. We had great presenters. They produced great programs. Who could think of things like Glyn Rowe? all of you would have a smile in her face and would say, God bless Miley, and God bless the rest of them. And there was great people. And we have RTE to thank for an awful lot of things over oh, the right. years. But at the same... But but, but at the same... And Binge and the Reardons as well and Maggie and all of them. And and they were great people. And we were very proud of them. And that's not a joke, it's a fact. But, like, don't don't knock the whole thing out. We need to keep our national broadcasting... Right, thank you but, very much. But, but please try and get it right.
2: Let's see if the brother has anything to
12: say about stick or stones. Did you ever have any concerns since you became minister of the massive size of payments to some presenters and maybe some of them were water, but I couldn't name two that weren't anyway, Joe Duffy and Ray Darcy, and how little the, 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 the people behind the scenes were being paid. Did you ever consider anything like that? And then, uh, did, do you know, or did you ever inquire as to how much the board members were being paid, and how much these days? did you ever inquire into any of this? And did, did, this, do you know, Minister, that the seller of a residential property will have to declare what they get for it. And it's galling to think that these people can get these massive exit packages, and it is taxpayers money, and that you or anyone want to demand them to come out with it and, and, and make them come out with what they're getting. And I mean, even, even um, farmers who get foreign payments because they weren't, uh, you know, from Europe or whatever, because they weren't paid uh, enough just to supplement them for producing uh, cheap food. All their payments have to be registered. Smart fellows above, under Magneton Mountain, or under uh, back in care, all them people have to get... Oh, their payments have been cleared.
2: The Hayley Ray's Danny there before that we heard uh, from the brother Michael and uh, they bring our programme to its conclusion today. Our time has run out on us once again. Before we leave you today thanks as always to Maggie Maguire who researched Chris Murray was in the control term. I'm Michael God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye bye.
1: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more.